Support for Yagni is provided by Flipper Cloud. Are big launches stressing you out? Then you need feature flags. Flipper Cloud helps your team deploy the code now and then roll out features when you're good and ready. Get started for free at FlipperCloud.io. Today I'm joined by Charity Majors, CTO and co-founder of Honeycomb IO. Charity is a combination of razor sharp wit, years of in the trenches work, and rainbow colored unicorns. It's a common meme that you should never deploy your code on Fridays, especially if you value your engineer's work-life balance. But is blocking deploys on Friday something to encourage? On this season premiere of Yagni, we discuss no deploy Fridays and also touch on the payoff space versus consistency space, testing in production, and football coaching trees. Welcome to Yagni. I often think about just how much this is an apprenticeship industry and, mm. and there's so much that I feel like I learned so much just by being lucky enough to work next to and with amazing engineers early in my career. And so I was able to absorb so much and it's so hit and miss and it's so somewhat random. And, and I also feel like there are these genealogical, these family trees, right? You've got like the Google way of doing things that has branched off from the Facebook way back around 2006. It, and sometimes they're like, they fork and sometimes they merge again. And it's, just, it's fascinating. Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know if you're a big sports fan, but they have this concept of the coaching tree, which is like the head coach of a team has like assistant coaches. And then those assistant coaches go and they become like head coaches somewhere else. And for a lot of like, especially in football, like a lot of like the Super Bowl champions, like you can trace back up the tree and it's like, oh, these people were all like on the staff of this one perennially like, great coach. It's like, they're typically not secretive about what they do. They'll write books, they'll talk, they'll be like, this is my philosophy. This is what, and yet there's something about working with them. You can't replicate the experience by having it explained to you. I'm curious, do you feel like now that we're in this remote heavy work culture, I feel sometimes guilty that it's kind of like we're like pulling the ladder up from under us. I certainly didn't start my career working remotely. Like I started in person at a consulting agency and I just worked on teams of like 10 engineers for 10 years. And I could always just poke somebody in the back or I could see out of the corner of my eye, like, oh, this person seems like they're really busy. I shouldn't interrupt them. And now it feels like everything is Zoom meeting away. I feel that way for a lot of reasons and a lot of dimensions. Like I'm a drop. I never went to high school. I never went to college. And the days when you could just be smart and motivated and self-taught and get into the industry are gone. But there's so much more professionalism. There are pedigrees. And some of it is for really good reasons because the entire financial system rests in our hands. And some of them are just gatekeeping. And I do think that like we as an industry have not figured out how to train people in general. It's a lot harder when you're dealing with folks who are just out of school who maybe haven't even learned like the sort of like essential habits that don't even have anything to do with the job, just about self-regulation and interactions and being human with people and like manners, let alone teaching people be good senior software engineers. Because there there is so much that you pick up just from observing out of the corner of your eye, like you were just saying, just like who's good at that. And you can watch them. You don't even have to interrupt them. You can watch them and you get better at your job. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly something to be said, I think, about remote work giving people like more probably focused time. But if I think back, it's like, well, working in like an open office definitely has its downsides, but it's like, oh, I could also just overhear two extremely competent people talking about something and 
whether or not I'm consciously picking it up. It's like going in my in the background of my head. And- yeah, absolutely. I very much have two very strong minds <laughs> about this that fight constantly. We made the decision to be all in on distributed teams even before the pandemic. We actually hired our first remote VP a week before the lockdown started. But we had a really vibrant present office culture, which has now just like dissipated and destroyed. And so like for a long time, we kind of had the best of both. And we would fly people out for the first few weeks that they were employed. So they would get some of that high bandwidth interaction. And then we would let people choose whether they... And some of the things that we did for this in-office seating, we would break teams up. Like teams were not allowed to sit together to force them to move their interactions online so they wouldn't be leaving people out. And um, we did things like once a quarter, we would have a, a blanket. Everyone works from home remotely the entire time to just sort of like force them to feel that empathy for each other. And it worked pretty well. But God, I do miss it. We just had our first ever all hands offsite in three years. We flew everyone to LA for part of a week. And the dynamic, this was a month, almost two months ago. And since then, it's palpable how much collaboration that thought it was my imagination, but then people started bringing it up to me unprompted, just how much more they were getting pulled into things, how much more they're getting consulted. You know, it was controversial internally. A lot of people thought we shouldn't have done it, but it really renewed my belief that getting together in person is, it is not optional. It is, if if you have a distributed culture, it's like the yeast in your bread. (laughs) It kind of reminds me of back in the day, like you'd have these big management consultancies where like people would like fly in and I wonder, like, there must have been something to that. Maybe they like had discovered that, like, you need the high bandwidth in-person stuff just to build so build rapport so quickly. I I read religiously the Atlantic Monthly. I, I just love that magazine. And I think that I think it was maybe it was New Yorker. I don't know. One of these had like a fairly short article, but just urging people, reminding them there's studies or science that says that you'll be happier if you spend your social time in person or, or like a significant chunk of it. And they were diving and delving into why. And it's because when we're tired, we're frustrated, whatever, we don't feel like going out because it's, it's a hurdle, but we're always so energized by the interaction when we get out there. And it's because it's not the same as being on. There's a lot of it has to do with self-awareness and self-consciousness of what you are sharing with those around you. And I feel it's on Zoom. It's more stressful when people are watching you, right? It's more stressful when you're present in the room. Yeah. But that's how we evolved. <laughs> if you've spent time together, I think the capacity of those remote connections to be richer, you can kind of, oh, that that little tick that they have, oh, I know what that means. And oh, you can be more ver- present with them, virtually speaking, if you've, if you've gotten to know them in person. Yeah. I wonder if we'll see a shift where if companies still follow like the remote, all distributed model, if that will become part of the responsibility of like a staff level engineer is like, more like a management consultant of like, oh, you need to like fly into Topeka, Kansas or whatever and onboard our new engineer like in person for two weeks. And if that just becomes like um, a common thing. Over the next year or two, I, I hope, I suspect we will get better at identifying the types of interactions that benefit from being in person versus remotely. It's like you think at the beginning of a project when it's design, when it's creativity, when it's you're getting excited and everything, whiteboarding stage, you can't do that and replicate the experience when you're not in the same room. But then like when once you're ramped up and you're working, it doesn't really matter. You can have your headphones on and be just focused at home and, and that's better. But I don't feel like we really have a vocabulary for most of those types of work. No. And it's I think it is 
it's frustrating because I think it's really important, a lot of this stuff, but I think it's like you're kind of fighting against the current and it's sort of unpopular to say some of this stuff. And it's going to reach a breaking point, I think, where people will realize that people are not getting the high bandwidth communication that they need or... So I think this can be done well where you're respecting the risks that you are asking people to take and you're looping them into the conversation. And so like we strongly encourage everyone to come to the offsite, but some companies make it mandatory. They're like, you have to get a permission slip if you're not coming. And I get why, because there are risks and people are nervous and it takes extra energy. Like one of our company values is that we hire adults and we treat people like adults. And that to me just means you can't make something like that mandatory. So I did spend a lot of time trying to make it attractive and trying to create a sense of FOMO because <laughs> that's legit. Yeah. There was an ask that we have a parallel distributed one. And I was like, no, <laughs> we have a distributed company. We have a distributed culture. We're not going to try and make the distributed experience match that of the in-person because this is the one time out of the year where we are focusing on being together. And we had a super minimal thing where they could call into the strategy session, but like, no. And I think that what I am seeing is that some companies that aren't really doing, they're reaching a breaking point, like you just said, and they're like, okay, everyone hauls back to the office. Everyone has to go to the office two or three days a week. And that's the solution. And that's a bad solution. That's going to, you're going to lose people because nobody likes to be told what they have to do. Yeah, it's interesting. And I don't know, it kind of reminds me of what I've sort of taken from you as kind of like your sort of general, I don't know, like theory of software. And I think like a big pillar of that is the like, I think you phrased it as speed is safety. I was familiar with it from Martin Fowler. If it hurts, do it more. Kind of like the frequency reduces difficulty. And I think just feels like such an interesting parallel to me that you'd see the same thing in software or ops or any of that of like, oh, if something's breaking, like immediately the answer is let's add rules, let's add rigid processes versus what I think you would advocate for is like, that's not the right way. It's not shifting to the opposite end. It's like you said, sort of being the adult in the room or doing more faster so that you sort of break through some of those barriers. Well, we have this tendency, like you said, to like add rules. And if you're relying on rules, you're always fighting the last war. Right. And I think that like for a time that kind of worked because there were only so many ways that it would break really. But like the more complex our systems get, the more we get better at resiliency and reliability, the complexity goes up even more, the less that rules are going to work. Like all you're going to do is create this massive red tape that nobody can keep up with. I don't think you can legislate away the need for human judgment. And I think that a lot of people are really uncomfortable with this because they don't fundamentally trust each other. And I think that there's no substitute. I feel like the context matters a lot too. Like there's like a mental model that I like that's like, are you operating in like the payoff space or the consistency space? And so different companies are not just companies, but like people within a company are operating in those different contexts, right? Like usually somebody that has like a large equity stake in the company, whether that's like a C-level person or if like a startup, like they're operating in like the payoff space where sort of like the ends justify the means, like going for that big exponential return versus something like, you know, a software consulting agency or the average engineer on the average product team, they're operating more from a space of like consistency and the people management model of, yes, we need you to predict how long the story is going to take so that we can plot it out with accuracy so that we don't miss our deadline so that our, it all rolls up 
I think there's just a lot of interesting things going around, like on the sort of undercurrent of a lot of these different organizational structures. For sure. And the thing that I just said about how like you can't legislate away judgment and good decision making, kind of like you just said, that's only the right rule to follow in certain contexts. There are other contexts where a few clear, bright rules clarifying, they add consistency, they add predictability, and they don't actually constrain people as much as they liberate people. Right. Like the guardrails are there for a reason. Like socio-technical systems are hard. And I feel like just learning to thinking about them as socio-technical systems has been kind of a baby step forward for us as an industry because without that language, I feel like the whole DevOps divide is like a breakup that should never have happened. Like that split between people who write to start and who write to maintain should never have been two different people. And I also feel like the language of management versus IC is deeply flawed (laughs) because you can't separate people work from technical work. There's so much overlap. There's so much interactiveness. God, I was having this long conversation yesterday with somebody about engineering productivity and velocity and how you measure it and all this stuff. Well, what gets measured gets improved. That's what I've heard. Exactly. (laughs) And engineers are great at optimizing things. Like you give them a metric, they're going to lean into it. What's your philosophy of engineering velocity? I don't know. Like I almost like recoil at the question a little bit of like, I know, right? (laughs) It's one of those questions where it's like, someone is asking me, it's like, I'm not sure that like I want to answer because I'm not sure that I want to like commit to anything. And maybe I'm just very skeptical, but I don't know. Like I can remember horror stories of working in a company where they had metrics around code coverage such that if your code had a certain percentage of code coverage, you didn't need to have your code reviewed. So of course, everyone is just piling on the code coverage to get to that level because having your code get reviewed was really slowing down the process. And then you're missing all your deadlines and the managers are coming down saying, why is this team behind? They're gumming up the entire assembly line here. So I don't know, like in honesty, it's been probably 10 years since I actually tried measuring metrics. I think I heard a discussion that you've had about giving people space to back down from titles. That was ringing especially true to me because it's like, oh yeah, like I am the CTO of an eight person company. In some ways, there's nowhere to go. You can't go up. And it's like, I don't want to be a a CTO of a even a 50 person or 100 person or 1000 person company. So it is interesting. What's the off ramp from this title of like, oh, when our company gets to 25 people, how do I step away from that so that I can keep doing like the IC stuff that I like to do? Yeah, that is such a good topic. I rarely run into people who have had director VP plus titles and who intentionally and willfully like step away from them. And every time I do, I'm just like blown away by them because it goes against everything that we're brought up to believe about achievement. You're supposed to go up and bigger and better and everything. And even for those of us who I think are not very hierarchical at all, at all when faced with these choices, there's still a bit of a, oh, that's yeah, in me somewhere. Yeah. It's so like ingrained too. Because when I talk to people outside of the industry, they're like, oh, like, you're done. You've like finished your career, right? Because that's the highest title that they know as an outsider of like what someone at a software company would be is like, oh, you're like the technical equivalent of the head of the company. It's like, well, I don't feel like that. And also I'm not. And yeah. Turns out we have 40 year careers and optimizing for learning and growth and what makes you happy and what makes you curious and what makes you interested every day turns out, I think, to be a much better long-term strategy. Yeah. And it it is interesting because It does feel like, I don't know if it's one of the few, but it is, it definitely feels like not all careers have that like potential to have a like 40 year IC path. 
Yeah. And even in software, I think the future is very unevenly here. You know, you talk to some people and they're like, my company does not work that way. You can't even get a raise past a certain point if you're not a manager. You can't make decisions if you're not a manager, which is, again, kind of circling loop a little bit why I hope that the new distributed overlords shake up some of those industries and make them compete for their people. Well, do you want to talk about no Friday deploys? The story kind of goes, we should value the work-life balance of engineers. Engineers have been historically poorly treated and not valued enough, and we should respect their boundaries. And so one of those boundaries that if you're in a compassionate, ethical, whatever sort of buzzwords you want to throw around like company, then they should not like have you deploying on Friday because then like you might get paged over the weekend or something bad might happen. And I think you're one of the loudest voices to say like, no, actually, this is kind of bullshit. Yeah. And I think what my stance gets simplified a lot into something that is not true, which people think that I'm just saying, everyone should deploy on Fridays. There should be no boundaries. And if you say don't deploy on Fridays, you're bad and I hate you. We should wait and hold all of our code and deploy it all at Friday at 5 p.m. <laughs> yeah, that's, exactly. That's definitely the caricature, which is obviously not what I'm saying. And there are some places, some companies where having a rule not to deploy on Fridays is absolutely the right thing to do for now. But I don't think it should be your ultimate goal. And I don't think you should be patting yourself on the back going, this is the best we can do for everyone. This is ultimately this end goal, because I think that that's really unfortunate. And I think that it's actually harmful. We were talking earlier about speed of safety and everything we know about shipping software well and respecting people's time and sleep and everything says you should do more smaller deploys, like faster, sooner, like smaller changes more often. The like golden ideal, I think, is that anytime someone merges their code to main, kicks off a CICD run and auto deploys. And in that case, if you don't want to deploy on Fridays or any other time, that's cool. Just don't merge your code. And I think that is like the ultimate. Having like a policy that don't merge your code unless you know you're going to be there till it's been deployed so you can check up on it, right? That creates this really tight, virtuous cycle where, I mean, one of the worst things about people who are like, don't deploy on Fridays, guarantee you they're batching up people's changes. They are bundling up all the changes that have been merged within hours, days, weeks, or whatever, and shipping them all out at once, which means that everybody who has a change in there is now like on notice for how long? Like hours, days, weeks, you don't know. Or, or they and, have enough cover fire, plausible deniability that it's like, well, it's not me. I'll wait for somebody to tell none me. None of them are going to go look at it. Like if you know your code is going live within an hour, you're going to go look at it. If you think at some point over the next day or week, it might go live, nobody's going to go look at it. Nobody feels that sense of ownership over the deploy. One of the things that we did at Parse later on was we changed the alerting rules so that if like an alert went out for the main API, if there had been a deploy within the last hour, we alerted the person whose code had just gone out. And that cut down on like the general paging alerts to whoever was on call by a lot. And not only that, but the engineer who had just shipped that code was really grateful and happy to get it, right? Because it was just like, all the context is still in your head. You know exactly what you've done. You know why you did it. You can go make that change because it's only your change, like really quickly and elegantly. And that should be the goal. The very idea that not deploying on Fridays would significantly impact your weekends 
is in and of itself pretty disturbing in, in, <laughs> in my world. Yeah. And it's like, if you take it to the logical conclusions, it's okay. So then also you probably shouldn't deploy like weekdays after like 3 p.m. And you probably shouldn't deploy like before 10 a.m. because not all the team will you know be online yet. And so suddenly it's, and you don't want to deploy from noon to one because people will be out for lunch. And suddenly it's like... And now you've reduced the amount of time you can deploy into like maybe 25% of business hours, which means that you're batching everything up even more and you're adding more risk to the system. Like it's just like so many of these issues with these socio-technical systems, it's either a virtuous cycle or it's a death spiral. And this, like when you start restricting when people can deploy, you're kicking off a death spiral. Yeah. It's interesting. I think people generally are just, or humans just have issue, I think, with understanding risk because like I learned this in the consulting world too. It's if you have an agency and you have one big client or you have 10 small clients, I think a lot of people will sort of say like, well, it's riskier if you have the small clients, right? And it's sort of backwards, right? Because it's if you have all your eggs in one basket with one client, that client has a bad quarter, suddenly you lose all your work versus if you have 10 clients, there's some like barrier there where if one of them cancels their contract, it's not likely that everybody else is going to follow. And it's the same way for, I think, releases, right? And, and deploying and these, these high-risk things of like, if there's a perception that doing a deploy or release is risky, you say, well, like, I want to minimize my exposure to these risky things, but you're just actually creating like a bigger chance that something goes wrong. Part of this, I think you have to look at the culture and if, are people going to get blamed and shamed for breaking things? Because if so, then it makes a lot of sense to wait for your changes to be batched up with everyone else's because you don't want to put your head up above everyone else's. Yeah. It's interesting. I was going to ask you too, like, what do you feel about blameless postmortems as like a concept? Because I, I could see on one hand, creating a culture where blame is thrown around does make people more skittish to deploy. But I can also see where it also like removes individual responsibility from people and maybe we're treating people like too fragilely. Yeah, I believe in responsibility. I believe in ownership. I think that agency, like your ability to affect change and your ability to own that change are tightly coupled. You can't give someone responsibility for something that they can't impact and you should give someone the ability to impact something that they're not responsible for. They really go together. If you're giving people the keys to the kingdom and be like, here, deploy whenever you want, but some other team's going to get all the alerts and all the pages and have to deal with all the code. That's not a great system. And if you're holding people responsibility for customer experience and you don't give them the ability to change code or, or deploy, then that's not a great experience either, right? And like fundamentally, people naturally, we want to have agency. I mean, that's the earliest lesson that babies learn about the world. Oh my God, I can touch this thing and it moves every time. It's hilarious. That's so fun. I want to just keep moving the thing, right? We really want to have the agency but as long as the culture doesn't like slap us in the face for it. So yeah. I feel like something that our RSRE team has started, saw this in the notes the other week, and I'm like, that's cool. They don't call it blameless. They, they say blame aware. They're like, we need to know what happened, but there's no stigma attached to this. It's like, who did what and why? But no, there's not even like the slightest intonation of you're bad for doing it, right? We assume yeah. that people are trying their best at all times. And if something broke, then there's something about the system that should be better so that people who are doing their best aren't going to fuck it up. And this is something that is easier said than done for sure. And I think that like for a lot of people, 
starting with the blamelessness is a really important first step. Got to meet people where they're at. But ultimately, we should be able to like talk very comfortably and confidently about the things that we've done that led to subpar outcomes because we don't feel that shame. Yeah. Like if, if somebody knows that like they fucked up and then you're in a meeting and it's like everyone is sort of tiptoeing around it, like it's not making them feel better. It's at least for me, that would make me feel worse if it's like, yeah, like I know it was me and I would just feel double bad. I think that one of the critical things that whether it's SREs running this or whatever is to like do whatever it takes. I've seen people just thank you. Thanks so much for finding this for us. Someone was going to find it. Thank you for being the one to trip over it. Or like adding humor to the proceedings or something that makes people smile and something that makes people feel comfortable volunteering themselves. If people don't feel comfortable fucking up, you have a bad system. Yeah. So I think that like blocking Friday deploys is a really important first step, but it's not, not the greatest ultimate thing. I also think that like in terms of like software philosophies, one of mine is that like software was exists in a state of entropy where everything's getting worse all the time. <laughs> like as soon as you build something or deploy it, it starts to decay, right? You start to accumulate dependencies and like leaks and all this stuff. And so you have to, in order to be a high-performing team, you have to frequently like leapfrog it, right? Do a big migration or adopt something new or something to stay ahead of the constant drip, drip, drip of your time and energy. And we have so many more tools and practices now for creating more reliable systems than we did 10 years ago or even five years ago. And I think a lot of teams who think that not deploying on Fridays, not getting paid for the weekend is the best you can do. I think a lot of teams don't realize what good can look like. Relatively few people have ever gotten to work on teams that were well instrumented, that had good observability, that were able to react fast, that were able to deploy within a few minutes, that were able to auto-deploy their changes, that had good tooling that, that created those virtuous feedback loops. Most people working on software have kind of shitty processes and, and stuff. And the thing, it has nothing to do with how good the engineers are. It is a function of how high-performing the team itself is. You can have the best engineer in the world. Maybe Google's, you know, you can have like, you know... John Carmack, yeah. John Carmack can come and join yeah. your engineering team. And if it takes you two days to deploy a change, it's going to take John Carmack two days to deploy a change too, right? These structures and processes that we have they set the bar and they either lift people up or they drag people down. I really like what you've said too about nobody burns out from shipping too often. I find whenever I'm having a bad week or I feel like I'm stuck, what I try to do is pause what I'm doing and then just ship something, even if it's not the most important thing. And I'm making a deliberate decision to say like, this wasn't on our plan. This is not high priority. This is not high leverage work, but I need to just get something out there. And then that usually unblocks the rest of it, and then I can get the, the important stuff done. This is where I feel like a lot of people who listen to me, I think a lot of the things I say sometimes make people afraid. And they think that some of the things that I say sound a lot like things that they've heard in the past from people who were treating them badly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> who were expecting bad things from them, you know, or like expecting them to work late into the night and everything. Right. And that's not, I believe that being on a high performing team is fun. And I don't believe that it means you have to work super long hours. Although I will say that harking back to our earlier talk about juniors, I do think that becoming a senior software engineer is harder than sometimes we remember it being. And I think that juniors do kind of need to, you know, I think that I try to set the expectation with them that it will be hard work, that they will have to push through some hurdles and that they will have to work late sometimes. 
they need to just, you know what I'm saying? Because I worry that if they think it's easy, they just won't get there. Yeah. And it's hard too, because there's a desire and I think it's well-intentioned to like grow the industry and make it more approachable. But I think there's like a fine line to walk between, hey, you don't need to do a four-year CS degree to get a job as a programmer. You can do a boot camp that gets you started. But then I think there's the flip side of that of, but it's not going to be that like, oh, after 12 weeks, you can get a job. And then after 12 more weeks, you've reached this like senior engineer status or... Yeah, I don't know. I'm conflicted about it because I think it is good that the industry is being opened up to more people. And if we want the industry to keep growing, like we need that pool of people. But at the same time, I do think it can set them off on the wrong foot or like building the wrong habits or like, yeah, I should be able to figure this out in 12 weeks because I did my boot camp in 12 weeks and then I got hired. And so, well, you actually probably are going to need 10 years of doing this before you build up the tacit knowledge of some of these things because they're just hard. It is a very complex message to try to send. Yeah. And complex messages are notoriously well-received and yeah, everyone gets it on the first try. Yeah. It's hard. It will take years, but pays off. I don't know. For me, it's if my hands aren't dirty, I have a hard time seeing it as work still sometimes. And I don't know what you're used to matters, I think. Yeah, for sure. I try to remember like at the end of the day, we're just sitting in a computer typing on a keyboard. Like it, could, it could certainly be a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about building the habits of like watching your code go out and like feeling accountability for that. I almost wonder, what if I told you that we should not write tests because that will put us in this like fear state of my code's going out and I don't have any tests. Do you think that'd be good? Is that a trade-off worth making? That's funny. I think of tests as checking to make sure you didn't regress. That's really it. I think that there's a lot of value in tests. I think the cultural message, though, of you're writing tests, therefore you're safe is just like, it's just not true. It's like, okay, you have covered the things that we know can break. And that's like a drop in the fucking pond, dude. Yeah, it is interesting. And I don't know, like I've swung back and forth in the pendulum too. And there is the rise of test-driven development and testing as the end-all, be-all and working in a startup pre-product market fit startup where you don't necessarily have the luxury of time and you're intentionally taking on that technical debt in the good technical debt metaphor of we are knowingly choosing to not do all the things that we probably would if we had infinite time and money. But I don't know, like that for me has built, like I am more aware when I'm deploying stuff or it makes me think about how risky is this? Is this like a small change on like an admin dashboard? Like, okay, whatever. I probably don't need to follow it along. Is oh, this is a big thing this is going to be scary to deploy. Like my like adrenaline is spiking or my, my cortisol is spiking or something. I think that's kind of good because it makes me like plan out, like, should I have a feature flag for this? How are we going to migrate existing customers? Should I like go in and try and break this to make sure that like Sentry is going to report an error if something actually does go wrong? And I think a lot of the times, like you said, like the tests can give you like a false sense of safety. So I don't know. I'm still trying to balance like what is the hierarchy you know, would it be better to not write tests so that you build this like observability muscle more or is that too far? I think tests should just kind of feel like habit, like people shouldn't really think about that. I hope that we're emerging from this stage where software engineers thought that their world consisted of their IDE and their tests. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and that, that's their loop. That's how they know if it's working or not, because that is just not true. And I feel like when people ask me how they can make their software engineer take responsibility over their code, I mean, like, well, who's on call for it? 
put them on call. That's the quickest, bluntest way to make sure that they feel the impact of what they're doing. If the only way you can get your team to care about observability instrumentation is by taking away their tests, then yeah, that's probably worth it. Hopefully you don't have to resort to that. At least for a couple of weeks as an experiment, it feels, yeah. I don't know. I'm not going to try it, but I feel like it'd be interesting to try. I also feel, I mean, there's a lot to this question, right? There's the question of how good is the tool? And obviously I'm a vendor, so blah, 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 blah. I discount everything I say. But like you're using as like the kind of metrics and dashboards tools that we've had for the past 20 years. Yeah, I understand why people don't look at those after they deploy. They're kind of useless, right? It's going to tell you what, did your CPU spike? Did your memory go out? Like, you have to know a lot about systems for that to even make any sense to you. I mean, engineers these days wouldn't even think that like a CPU spike is probably something that he would even think to look at, right? It's like the CPU and memory is so abstracted and so far away now that it's, you know, it's like the distance between writing like application code and byte code. And then there's know. all the co-tenancy issues, right? Oh, maybe it was someone else on your hypervisor or whatever. But like if you're using a, a modern observability tool where it uses the language of endpoints and functions and variables and database calls, HTTP calls, and you can see, oh, I changed this. And when I compare the last build ID to this build ID, like the percentage of errors to the export endpoint has gotten gone up by 30% or the latency has gone up by this amount. Being able to visualize that and, and really look at instrumentation you just wrote and say, is it doing anything weird? Does it look different? Is it doing what? Also just like getting in the habit of adding instrumentation that you know will tell you whether or not the change that you made is doing anything. That's something I think engineers are too used to using their tests for when yeah. be using production for that. Yeah. Has anyone ever, you'd know more about the industry and the state of things like, has anyone ever presented this as more of like a diff? I'm just imagining like, with a pull request, we review code as like, here's the change. I wonder if there's like, after you deployed this, if there's like a diff that is like, these numbers went up. I just think that would be, it's like more, like you said, like sort of meeting people where they're at. If it's like, if after you merged a pull request, you got tagged as a review on another pull request that was like, hey, this is what changed. People do something kind of like that with Honeycomb. You can't do it with most tools because most tools don't support high cardinality and high dimensionality. But people have done something with Honeycomb where as after each deploy, they generate a link that will hold up this versus that, and they can create a derived column that will let them know if there's been a spike in the new version versus the old or something. Yeah, that's interesting. I know there are some tools more on the dev side that are, for example, oh, in this pull request, you increased your JavaScript bundle size by 26%. Are you aware that you did that? Did you mean to do that? There's some super interesting things coming out of like the trace test area, like using distributed traces in your test harness. I think it's going to be really interesting in a year or two. Do you know the tools like Hotjar or Full Story that do like, so these are tools more from like a product angle. And what they'll do is they'll instrument as someone is browsing your app and it does a screen recording. So then you can sort of play back. Do you feel like this fits into the like observability lens? I know for us, it's a very crude way of getting some of these things, but it is more so than just I deploy the code. It's like, oh, you can watch somebody use the app and like you can observe it from their perspective to see what's happening. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, Capture Replay is the gold standard of testing, whether you're doing it through the browser or you're doing it through the back end or whatever. And I think that doing that in production is super valuable because then you can see what it actually does with the data, not just the schema. You can see what it does with the data, which is often profoundly different from what it would do in a without. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, I feel like the product discipline of 
tracking metrics of was this feature successful or did someone activate on this feature and tools like the full story that are like recording from an external perspective. It feels like they are a lot closer to the state of the art things in the DevOps world than a lot of the sort of engineering discipline. Definitely agree. I guess it's probably because they have more exposure to the external users and engineering gets gets isolated and it's easy to just think about it, like you said, as like my editor and my tests are, are the only thing that matter. Yeah. I mean, if you define observability the way I define it, which I've lost that battle and I accept this now, literally everything under the sun is called observability, whatever. But if you define it the way I define it, then being able, it's all about tracking the experience from the perspective of the user. It's all about aggregating. The only aggregation that gets done is around that user's experience. So I've heard this thing said about a couple of different like technologies, but like the one that I always remember is like solar panels, where people are always like waiting for the cost of solar because it like keeps going down. So it's like, well, if I buy them now, then in five years, that'll be one tenth of the price or something. Do you feel like people do this with ops or infrastructure type things of the longer I wait, the better it will be. And so I don't know like when to make the jump. I'm thinking from my perspective of especially on the engineering side, there's like so many things that come in that are the newest, latest, greatest things. Would it have been good to learn Kubernetes when it first came out? Maybe, but if I wait five years, like it's probably going to be more resolved. And then maybe if I wait 10 years, then I will be able to like completely skip learning it because it's been taken over. I'm curious, like what your take on that would be. Early adopters are very different from early majority. This is something that I've been learning about this more from the business perspective is that like, I don't know if you've ever seen like crossing the chasm. I think that the early majority expects there to be a whole product, which means not just the product itself, but the support, the docs, the examples, all this stuff. And there's a conference about it. There's books about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I think most people are waiting for. I don't think that people tend to be particularly optimistic about ops software getting better. And I think that they are usually pretty aware that the longer they put it off, the more painful adoption will be. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense. And it does seem like, at least from the upside, like it does seem like progress is kind of steadily moving forward. And at least there are some things that aren't going away anytime soon versus I think in, in the engineering side, things do definitely pop up and then disappear in, in the blink of an eye. And nobody is writing like a backbone JS app anymore, but definitely spent you know hours learning how to do that, that are now basically all for naught. Yeah. I mean, the end game for op software is software as a service, obviously. That's why I feel like the rise of platform engineering teams is kind of this glimpse at a future where almost none of your, your operational infrastructure software defined as the stuff you have to run in order to get the stuff that you want to run. Almost none of that is managed in-house. And it's just the platform team that sits there and makes the decisions, writes the glue, does some education. But instead of having infrastructure teams where you're responsible for uptime and nines and all this stuff, you have a team that is responsible for enabling software engineers to be responsible for the reliability of their code. What do you think about certifications and things like SOC 2? Do you think that they're like doing like a net good by pushing people toward things like, hey, you need to have more automated infrastructure or you need to define how you're monitoring errors and things like that? Do you think that's a net win or does it risk not being able to keep up with the, the change of pace in the industry? Yeah, I think it's a net win, but it's a very costly one. And, and honestly, the biggest costs 
that cost the most from my perspective are the ones that aren't actually costs. They only live in people's minds. They're cargo cultures. Like this thing that's gotten around where most people, many people believe that you have compliance requirements. Developers can't deploy their own software. Most people seem to believe this. And most security teams seem to tell people this. And that is just not true. And most, there's so many of these things that people just know to be true that make them build worse software aren't actually true. They're just a particular interpretation that was based on somebody made it up or heard it from someone else or some auditor said there's whatever, but it's not written there. There are other interpretations that are much better, more agile to use the term, but like people just through risk aversion and deference to authority and just not wanting or needing to be an expert in this understandably, they end up adopting really bad policies that hold them back. I'm curious, maybe a new marketing technique could be for the no Friday deploys is maybe we could shift it to no Monday deploys because nobody likes, you know, everyone's kind of groggy after the weekend on Mondays. Maybe if we can disrupt the Friday as that key day, then you could take over. Well, when people ask me about how can I get my boss to sign on to this, you know, my advice is always never say the words Friday and deploy or or test in production, right? Never say the words testing and production. You're doing real-time verification or something like that, right? They're just three words that people just don't need to hear. Yeah, it's, it is interesting that you almost have to like hide it, put the medicine in peanut butter. Yeah, or don't focus on what you're not doing or something, but focus on what you are doing. I've never yet met a company that wouldn't <laughs> be served, wouldn't be dramatically improved by speeding up their deploys. It hasn't happened. I'm sure there is a theoretical limit where that wouldn't be time well spent, but I have yet to encounter it. And like just working on speeding up that feedback loop, I was starting to say this earlier, but being afraid of of Friday deploys is a smell that so many other things are wrong. You're not finding the problems until what day or two after your deploy. That's terrible. (laughs) That means that you probably don't have instrumentation. It means that nobody's looking at it after you've deployed it. It means that your customers are finding your problems for you. The cost of finding and fixing bugs goes up exponentially after the moment that you, you know, you type, you find the bug, you backspace, great, can't get any faster, right? The second fastest is is in code review. And the third fastest is right after you've deployed. You should be looking at it because otherwise, yeah, it's just going to be like, it's just going to be a leak. It's going to bleed until somebody specifically encounters it. If teams would just look at it, They'd find these things. Yeah. And it's almost like the least you could do, right? It is the least you could do. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just imagining like even like the early days of like, you'd get code put up for review. And did you even try to compile it? Or like, did you even open the web page that you changed? Yeah. Does it run? (laughs) Did you try? But there's, there's a whole cultural transformation that needs to go on in order for people to actually do that bare minimum. And traditional ops teams have a lot of blame here. They often have gotten so huffy about production. They're like, you're not supposed to touch it. You let me do that. Don't you log in. Don't you poke at it. You're not good enough. It's too complicated. You don't get direct access. Or they just like tell people that it's too hard. It's too complicated. If you tell people that for long enough, they're going to stop trying. And if the tools are so shitty that they, you know, if engineers, if you like mandate it, you must look at your change in production and they never find the bugs. Well, then that's not a good policy, right? It means you don't have instrumentation. 
you don't have the tools. It has to be rewarding, right? They have to associate doing the right thing with getting a dopamine hit of it paying off. There needs to be some shift that it's like your feature isn't done when the code is merged. It's not done until you've checked it in production or until for the P95 that it doesn't works or whatever. Yep. I think I've tweeted this out like a dozen times. Like your job is not done until you've checked it in production. You know, and it's like, it's tricky and complicated because these are people and because you can't just like, yes, it seems simple, but what are the policies? What are the patterns? What are the tools? What are the, how do you nudge people into doing this more? How do you make this become a habit? It has to pay off, right? If you read those books on forming habits, there has to be a trigger, something that reminds them to look at it. And then it has to pay off. They have to feel good after looking at it. So like maybe like sending them a Slack message once their deploy has finished and sending them a link to it. And then this feedback loop does start to spin in a virtuous direction. It accelerates or like people get so excited about it. So it's almost, you know, an alert so that as soon as their deploys or their test runs start to be more than 15 minutes, somebody pays it back down. Right. And people get really excited about this stuff. Yeah. There's so much about this too, that it is really like a cycle. And I think hit the nail on the head there of the things can be virtuous or they can spiral down. If there's no incentive to check it, or if it's hard to check it, why is that? Well, it's because deploys are slow and like, why are deploys slow? Cause we're not deploying enough and we don't have the trust to do it. And these things, it's like, it can almost feel like overwhelming, I think, because you need to pick one of the things to do because like it'll slowly kind of flywheel, but it also feels like I can't pick the one thing because I need to do, I need everything. But the thing is that this is not one of these things where you have to labor and labor and get everything right and finally it will kill, click. It's like every step you take improves it for everyone. If it takes you four hours to run tests and deploy and you get it down to two hours, you've made every engineer's life like materially better and they will notice and thank you for it. Do you get it down to one hour? This is real time that you're saving and it compounds all the engineers in the company. Yeah. I think the framing is interesting too. Like you said, of don't say testing and production or don't say some of these things. Like you said, like if you go to someone who has hierarchical authority over what you're supposed to be doing and you say, hey, can I have time to improve the build process, the answer might be no, versus if you say, wouldn't it be great if we could respond more quickly to an outage? You're like, oh yeah, sure. No one's going to say no to that. No one's going to say, no, I'd like us to be slower at responding to outages or no, I'd like it to take longer for customers to get new features. And that's it's like a hard thing, I think, for like engineer-brained people to do sometimes yeah, of like, like, oh, I shouldn't have to package this up in a nice marketing-friendly message to somebody, but like kind of do. If there is a, you had one job of engineering leadership, it is that. It is learning how to communicate engineering goals and priorities to non-engineers and vice versa. And I think that engineering brains really resist imprecision. (laughs) And so we have a hard time with the whole like, it will say roughly, you know, but we have to get over it because business types deal in imprecision all day long. They're not fussed by the fact that it might be off by 50%. If it's within an order of magnitude or two, that's fine for them. We'll like unblock them and let them move forward. Over and over again, I think that people need to learn to make the case. We have the Dora metrics now for like dealing with customers, right? Like how often do you deploy? How long does it take? How often does it fail? How long does it take to recover? I feel like we need an analog for developer productivity. How long does it take between when you write the code and when the code can be live? How long does it take you to make a one-line change? And like set 
this is acceptable, right? And above yeah. that is not like an SLO, right? Like setting SLOs for internal productivity and like sticking to them, like seems like an amazing idea. I wonder on your point about engineers dealing with imprecision, I wonder if that's a good role for architects, which I know you've been sort of critical as of late, because I can think back and I've certainly worked with a lot of architects that were the sort of stereotypical divorced from the code. Like I will do the UML diagram and then you go implement it, whether or not like the code even makes sense. The most effective architect I actually worked with, I think got like a very bad rap from the engineers, but they were able to speak that like imprecise language and get like business stakeholders excited about this service-oriented architecture or like an event-based system or something. And I think the engineer sort of sneered and said, this person doesn't actually know how to implement this thing that they're talking about. I'm the one that has to do the work. We're not really doing this pattern that they like put in the pitch deck. But at the same time, like the project went through. Yeah. yeah. That is an incredibly valuable skill set. When I was complaining about architect job, they said that architects, in my experience, they're either most amazing engineers I've ever met, or they're pretty useless. And there's just not much in the middle. But there are a lot of them who are just like, companies can't work without them. I think kind of to your point, I think that something I didn't really talk about much, but like the architects who still have a hand in the code, who are like that type, I feel like the title for them is just becoming principal engineer or staff plus engineer. I think there is mostly at large companies, but I think there is a, a role that's different from that like you were describing, which is they can understand deeply these technical, maybe they can't do it themselves. That's okay, because they can do the work on the business side to carve space or to get this project over the line or do the convincing or something like that. I think it's very similar to a lot of agile coaches where it's kind of the same. It's like there's really good ones and there's really bad ones and there's kind of no in between. And their function is probably best served at getting the space for change to happen. Whether or not the changes they implement are actually good is a topic for another podcast. But yeah, yeah. and whether or not even needing some, someone in that role is a bad sign or not is an awesome topic for another podcast. Do we need to block deploys on Fridays? I hope not. <laughs> Only you know whether or not you need to block deploys on Fridays. And if you do, I believe you, you know your work better than I do. Just don't stop there. Um, you can do better. People deserve better. And for me, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a no, unless you're also blocking deploys on Tuesday at 4 p.m. Right. Don't block deploys. Tell people not to merge. Want people to feel free to deploy when they're ready, but don't want anyone to just like deploy and walk out the door. It doesn't matter if it's 4 p.m. on Tuesday, Friday or whatever, like people own their code and they own their changes. And fundamentally, you need the processes to support that. Thanks for listening. You can find show notes and links at yagni.fm and find me on Twitter at underscore Swanson.